Karen Becker does not particularly enjoy crushing people's dreams, but it is a necessary part of her work. You might not know who Karen Becker is. Many of you probably don't. In fact, I'd be surprised if anyone does. She is a highly respected expert in assessing the value of Beanie Babies. Remember those stuffed animal toys that were all the rage in the 90s? So oftentimes these days, people who find bins full of Beanie Babies in a closet they haven't visited in decades or cleaning out a loved one's home, they will reach out to Karen Becker hopeful that perhaps they have found something that would be worth serious money. At the height of the craze, you probably, many of you probably remember this, those of you who are old enough to remember, people thought Beanie Babies were this great investment, these collector items that would hopefully fund retirements, send children to college. And yet, now so many of these Beanie Babies are worth basically nothing. So when people call Karen Becker, she is oftentimes in the business of crushing dreams. Dreams or expectations are crushed when something thought to be of great value is actually revealed to be of little to no value. Our passage this morning features Jesus doing his own work of crushing dreams, but it is of far greater consequence, far greater significance than what Karen Becker does with Beanie Babies. Jesus exposes the faith of some that seems to be of incredibly great significance, yet it is empty. And so the question that we ask ourselves as we open Luke 14 is, am I willing to have Jesus ask me hard questions of my faith, assess the value of the faith that I profess and believe? See, what this text puts before us, what I'm going to argue from our text this morning is Do not deceive yourself with devastatingly empty faith. Surrender everything and follow Jesus. Let me say that again. Do not deceive yourself with devastatingly empty faith, but surrender everything to follow Jesus. I invite you to follow along as I read. I'm going to read the whole chapter. God's Word and its great importance, we are going to try to put together and to carefully think about what it says, but the most important thing you will hear me say today is what I'm about to read from God's Word. I invite you to follow along. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, 
Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. May God write these truths of His Word upon our hearts and our lives this morning. We're going to carefully consider six questions that will examine the sureness of our faith in Him. Six questions that will carefully examine the sureness of our faith in Him. First, 
Are you aware of your captivity? When, it, when, when investigating the validity of your faith, are you aware of your natural captivity? We begin with Jesus going to the house of, the, of, of, a, of a ruler of the Pharisees. They, these were spiritual leaders. These were authorities in Israel. And he goes to their house or goes to one of their homes for a meal on the Sabbath. Jesus didn't seem to practice the Sabbath. He didn't seem to practice the same strict adherence to the Sabbath as the Pharisees did. So what we find in this introductory account is that the Pharisees did something that many of any self-respecting person would do. They arranged a test or a trap to try to find out what Jesus was really all about. They likely arranged for this man who was clearly sick with dropsy to show up on the scene. They likely brought him in. You see, it says, and behold, a man with dropsy. You see, dropsy was a disease that produced swelling of the flesh through fluid accumulating in the joints. It was terribly painful. So this man, who has likely been brought there by these Pharisees, appears before Jesus, and he does what? He heals him. But if you look at it, if you kind of read through the context of the story, the important thing to see here is not the healing. It's secondary. It's off to the side. The thing that's central is the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. And what we find as they fail to see their own captivity is that God in the flesh stands before them having healed a man of a terrible disease, and they're sitting there saying, you know, yeah, yeah, you can do that kind of thing, but I want to make sure you're on the right page with us on the really important things. That's where they are. I believe it is Kevin Van Hooser that has noted that it is easier to do something than to the Word of God than to let the Word of God do something to us. For these guys having a meal with Jesus, they had perhaps subconsciously push, pushed back on God's commands to love Him, to surrender their lives to Him in total obedience. Instead, they had enacted a form of law-keeping in accord with the rules that they had written. This enabled them to say, you do this and you'll be right with God. This is what we naturally think of sometimes when we think of religious experience or religious life. I do these things and hope I make myself right with God. And yet the message of Jesus, the message of His gospel is where grace comes to us and then obedience or righteousness is pursued in response to that. But the grace has already come to us. Now, you wonder, well, why, why would somebody want to create a system where they have to earn their way to God as opposed to receiving this grace, being made right with God, and then living in obedience to Him? I think the key is in this idea of surrender. When you make the rules, you get to tell God how far He can go. You get to set the course for your life, and you get to set, you, you get to set the path where you are the one ultimately in control, whereas the grace of God is actually a grace that calls us to surrender, to be made new. And so the key here is in this idea of surrendering. Giving oneself up, giving up control of one's life is not easy before the Lord. And yet to receive grace, you receive what the Bible calls new birth. You belong to Him, and He sets your heart free. Now, the example of the Pharisees and the lawyers is, is what we would think of as more of like a legalistic example, perhaps more religiously conservative, but we still practice these things today. In a more religiously conservative sense, okay, you do your righteousness and you will be made right with God. Or in a sense that's totally perhaps irreligious, 
In our day and age, all that we look to, all that we hear is that the answers are found in you. You be true to yourself. You live your truth. You, the, 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 the answers to your happiness are found within you. How often do we hear such things? Or we are told that the answer to our deepest problems, the answer to salvation, is actually found in us. We still live in this world where we try to make the rules and we fail to see our captivity and the grace that we need to be sprung free from the prisons that we have built of our own self-righteousness and our own pursuits of our happiness apart from Christ. So, as you honestly seek to know yourself, are you aware of your captivity? Second question, are you aware of your arrogance? Yeah, I'm calling you arrogant. I'm calling myself arrogant. You think that's bad. Wait till we see what happens later. Um, Continuing on at this dinner party, Jesus tells a parable of a wedding feast. Remember, parables are stories that are told that are meant to articulate a point, a big idea, a theme that will help them to understand and see themselves. So you have all the guests arriving at this wedding feast, and in Jesus' day in the culture, people would be seated at social events. Uh, Those that were near the front, near the top, were of greater prestige, greater honor, greater reputation, and then it kind of went out to the riffraff that would be out at the outer reaches. And Jesus sees this unfolding at this dinner party that he's attending, and he says, you guys have it all messed up. You're you're, you're trying to climb over each other into places of honor and prestige. You politic and slap one another on the back, hoping to build your reputation up, your importance, your value. But he says, be careful because you sit down in a place of honor, and what's going to happen is someone of greater honor is going to walk in, and the guy hosting the feast is going to come and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I need that seat for this guy. And you're going to have to get up and you're going to have to, in shame, walk all the way to the lowest seats. He summarizes the point in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, here's a fascinating concept I want you to give. The the gospel, this message of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and its power, and its meaning, its importance for us, the gospel shows us both our worth as well as our unworthiness. Think about it. It shows us our worth as well as our unworthiness. See, it shows us our sin Our rebellion against God was so great that nothing but the death of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God who took on human flesh and bore a horrific death on a cross, nothing but that could accomplish our redemption. This reveals our unworthiness. Pretty rough state that the Son of God has to come to earth and die the death of a a horrific criminal in order to atone for our sins. That's our unworthiness. But the gospel also shows us that the love of Jesus for us is so great that he was glad to take on that responsibility and die in your place and in mine. This reveals our worth. The gospel reveals both our unworthiness and our worth. And so, when the gospel has truly taken root in our hearts, you don't have to try to claw your way to that place of honor. You don't have to try to get to that position where you think people view you in a way that you want to be viewed. Because your worth is entirely secure, your value, your understanding of self, your true picture of who you are, and and, and the glories of what it means to know God are tied to Jesus Christ and His work. So you don't have to keep up with the Joneses, you don't have to keep up with status. 
So when this heart takes over within you, a spirit of competitiveness, of measuring yourself against others evaporates, and you're able to rejoice in the love of God. You don't have to worry about honor or dishonor that you receive from those around you. Your soul has found unshakable peace in the love of God for you in Jesus Christ. This enables you to celebrate the successes of others. This enables you to honor those who frustrate you, honor those who you feel crowd in on the glory or recognition that you believe that you deserve. It enables enables you to take a place of humility and service to those who you feel overlook you because you know your Lord has not overlooked you. And those who are humbled will be exalted. You know, as a church, there are ways in which we wish we'd grown more numerically in this replant that we've been undertaking than we have. But, you know, we could respond and stew and say, you know, why are other churches growing? Why do we hear stories from sister churches in the area that are growing in ways that maybe we're not growing at the same pace? Or we can make it a regular pattern to rejoice in the good news of fruit that the Lord is bringing and bringing people to Himself. And rejoice in His grace and His power at work and trust Him to do His work in us. Knowing we're not seeking the honor of, of, of building our reputation. Rather, we rejoice in the kingdom and its growth and trust His good hand at work within us. You see, if you're always concerned with what others think of you, you will always be enslaved to their opinions. But if your heart is rooted in the gospel, you're free to love and serve others because you know that you are loved and served by Jesus and nothing can take that away from you. So are you aware of your arrogance? Do you try to nurture your reputation before others, or do you humble yourself under the grace of God? Third question, are you aware of your blindness to grace? This is verses 12 to 14. The next parable Jesus shares is interesting and and maybe a little confusing. Let's, Let's just read it in verses 12 to 14. This is, this is quickly becoming the most awkward dinner party perhaps ever recorded, okay? I mean, I mean, imagine Jesus saying these things to the people that are hosting him, okay? He also said to the man who invited him, verse 12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. It's like he, Jesus is looking at the guy who's hosting this party with all these others. Yeah, when you give a party, don't invite these guys. Why are they here? Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Throughout the Old Testament, a great hope of the people of God grounded in the Bible, in the Old Testament, as well as affirmed in the New, is the promise of a physical resurrection that God's people would enjoy as God's king rules over God's kingdom. And one defining image of this great reward is a feast provided by God himself for all who belong to him. So by these Pharisees' unwillingness to graciously care for the poor, the blind, the lame, the crippled, they're betraying that they actually had little true resurrection hope. Because they're seeking a resurrection of their status, of their image, as opposed to serving those who can give them nothing in this life. When you serve the blind, the lame, the crippled, they're not going to help advance your status. 
but rather by you seeking to meet the needs of these least fortunate, you are actually serving out of an awareness of the resurrection hope that has come to you. See, knowing the grace of God will lead to a love for those who are dramatically different than you. Understood rightly, the Christian gospel doesn't puff you up, it humbles you. It brings you to a place of service to others and who in the eyes of the world can give you little, if anything. See, the Christian gospel tells us that at one point, spiritually, all of us who are Christians, we were at one point spiritually blind, lame, poor, crippled, even dead. But God in His grace has caused this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to penetrate our hearts and give us new birth. So how can we, recipients of such divine, spectacular grace, be concerned about building ourselves up and not about caring for the needs of those who can give us nothing in return? That's what Jesus is asking us here. Are you aware of your blindness to grace? Next, He asks these Pharisees gathered here, are you aware of your dis- what your disinterest reveals? Are you aware of what your disinterest reveals? There's something curiously funny that happens in verse 15. So the tension in the room is rising. The dinner party's gone totally off the rails. But after hearing mention of the resurrection of the just, one attendee found an opportunity, I I think, to probably try to lower the tension. One of the Pharisees, okay, they know their Old Testaments. And they're saying, all right, I heard him mention resurrection of the just. We're really looking forward to that. So he says in verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus just keeps going. He keeps going, continually exposing the lack of awareness of those gathered and forcing us by God's grace and kindness to ask ourselves questions that we need to ask. It is no mistake at all that each and every one of us who are sitting here interacting with this passage are doing so. I hope that we are not wasting the opportunity to interact with these words of God. To let Jesus' words carefully examine us. Jesus gives a parable in verses 15 to 21 of a man who gave a great banquet. Now, If you think about it, in Jesus' day, they did not have the meal preparation and refrigeration capabilities that would enable them to uh, mass-produce meals and then store them and, and, and everything that we can do today. So, inviting people to great banquets was a matter of sending out an initial invitation, kind of getting a head count based on responses to that, and then as the food was prepared and as it became clear when everything would be ready, a courier or a servant would be sent out to then try to invite everyone who had RSVP'd and say, now's the time for the feast. Now's the time for the feast. Get here while the food is still warm. So that's the the background of what is happening. So when it's time for the second invitation to go out, to bring in everyone who already has supposedly reserved a spot, the man sends his servant, but he keeps running into people who originally RSVP'd, but now they are making excuses. One man has to go check a field. One man has to go check his oxen. Another guy said, hey, between me confirming the invitation or accepting the original one and now this, I got married. I got other responsibilities now. Ultimately, what it's revealing is they're disinterested. They're making excuses. 
And Jesus is saying to those gathered at this meal, you say you are the people of God. You say you worship the one true God, but now He has sent His Son. He has sent the Messiah in the flesh. And I am He. I'm telling you to follow me, but you are coming up with every excuse imaginable. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying your schedule that is so demanding that it does not leave room for you to follow Him. It does not leave room for you to spend time with brothers and sisters in the church body, to gather together for worship. It doesn't reveal a busy schedule. It reveals a disinterested heart. Jesus is saying your priorities, your entertainment, your desire to live life to the fullest here, to nibble on the crumbs of all that life offers, nibbling on those crumbs will keep you from the great banquet feast that awaits. Do you have thoughts in your mind that you will become more interested in spiritual things when you get older, when life slows down, when it doesn't move as fast? I think Jesus is telling us that no matter our age, no matter our stage of life, if our hearts are disinterested in Him, we will always find more fields we have to inspect. Not because we are too busy, but because we are actually disinterested in Jesus. Do you like the concept of Jesus? But commitment to Him is too much to bear. Are you aware of what your disinterest reveals? Listen to Jesus in verse 24. He says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Fifth question that Jesus forces us to ask. Are you aware of the wonder of God's grace? There's something incredible that happens after the three different men turn down the invitation to the banquet. Look at this in verses 21 to 23. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to his servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. You see what's happening? Those who fail to see that they are spiritually starved, they're the ones who decline the invitation to the feast. But those who know that they are hungry but cannot find food, they are the ones who are brought into the feast. You see that? Are you heavy hearted? Are you feeling the weight of your own weakness? Are you feeling the burdens of your own suffering or the suffering of a loved one or someone near to you? And do you feel even your own sin? Maybe these questions have, have done, Jesus' words have done like a, 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 a surgery on your heart, jujitsu on you, that you, you are feeling beat up inside because of this. If you're in that boat, you are closer to the kingdom of God than the person who has everything going for them and they are entirely disinterested in the things of God because they believe they have heaven on earth right here. The crippled, the blind, the lame, the beggar, they don't think they have heaven on earth right here. They don't think they have everything they need. And Jesus says they're the ones who are ready for the feast they're the ones who I go out into the fields and I bring them in and say, come to me and find rest. 
If this is you, I invite you by faith, come to Jesus. He will take all that weighs you down, all that devastates you, and He will meet you in the midst of it. He will give you rest. He will give you Himself. If you're tired of carrying the burdens that life thrusts upon you, and you would welcome Jesus to take these burdens upon Himself, I I urge you to speak with me after this service. I would love to share more about what it means to come to know and follow Jesus. Or perhaps ask the Christian that you came to church with today. Christian brothers and sisters in this church family, you know one way that this passage convicted me this week? (laughs) Not one way, there are about 500 ways, but one way let us never approach the throne of grace as if, as if we are impatiently waiting on a server to meet the needs that we have. As if we're waiting on a reservation that we have made. Sitting there saying, all right, God, Jesus, come on. I'm ready for your grace. Come on, give it to me. No, we run to His throne. Let us hear a warning here. There is a danger of growing tired of the grace of God, dear Christian. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but as a pastor, I know not all, but many of ours, like particularly our church members, your, your stories of how you came to faith. And I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I could say overwhelmingly a large majority of you, you came to faith in the midst of some crisis you were walking through. Jesus met you with His grace when you were a beggar, lame, crippled, blind, and you needed mercy, and and it was nowhere else to be found. Let us never grow tired of that grace. The song we're going to sing in just a moment was just heavily informed by this text. Verse 2, while our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Are you aware of the wonder of God's grace? Sixth question, are you aware of the high cost of following Jesus? The dinner party has mercifully ended, and now in verse 25, you note that great crowds were accompanying him. He's gone outside or moved on, and so I think here's one thing that's happening. Jesus has just dealt with severe critics of his. And he's told them, you are missing the boat. And here's all the ways why. Now he's taking those who think they want to follow him. And he's saying to them, I want you to carefully consider what it means to follow me. Okay? So are you aware of the high cost for following Jesus? High cost of following Jesus. I have a confession to make. I kind of lied to you about six questions. There are six questions, but question six has four sub-questions. They're going to be quick. 
So are you aware of the high cost of following Jesus? First sub-question. Oh, and one other thing I need to caveat. Um, you thought the first, six question, or first five questions were difficult. Now it gets difficult, okay? Uh, first sub-question, verse 26, will you forsake your family? Yeah, that gets difficult, right? Verse 26, I, I did not write this in your Bibles. These are the words of Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, we, we should give Jesus credit. He's clear. Doesn't beat around the bush. This is incredibly difficult to hear. Now, to be clear, we think of, when we think of hate in our day, we think like a total visceral disgust, anger towards someone. And I think Jesus is best understood here. You know, like words and translations going from one language to another in time and how words, the evolution of language, a more biblical picture of hate is more not like a visceral hatred towards others, but a clear priority of one over the other. So he's basically saying, you cannot choose your family over me. Okay? So, Jesus is saying, what exactly? Remember this concept of, of we are brought to new life, new birth by the grace of God, and then everything in life flows out of that. We can't build walls, lines of my faith informs this part of my life, but not this part. And so Jesus is saying here that you following me means that I will be your great treasure, your great prize, your great priority over all things, including your faith or, or your family or even including your own life. So is Jesus saying I should skip my kids' Little League game because I have to attend any and every Bible study that is ever offered? Or I shouldn't recognize the stress and strain on relationships in my family with non-Christians when considering finances, the calendar, you name it? No, I think Jesus is saying your heart can only serve one master. You might face innumerable circumstances that require careful consideration, but he's saying, I, Jesus, who just exposed the emptiness of faith of those who thought they were near to God, I will not be fooled by those who say they love me, but place anything else in a position of adoration over me, including family. So the question isn't, do I have to miss Little League choir performances Anything else? No, it might be, do I only gather with the church for worship when I don't have family obligations that demand elsewhere? Or does Jesus Christ have the ultimate place of authority over me? And you know, there's a word of comfort here. Our church has a fairly high number of people who you are a Christian, but your spouse is not. You're a Christian, but your parents are not. You're a Christian, but your children are not. You're a Christian, but nobody else in your family are Christians. And you find it difficult. It places a strain upon you. And you say, am I doing something wrong here? Why is this difficult? Well, if you're feeling the weight of that difficulty, maybe you're right exactly where you should be. You're a disciple of Jesus. 
Hear the words of Jesus as a comfort to you. Press on, follow me. I'm with you as you navigate these tricky waters in your home amongst those who do not know me. So second question, will you take up your cross? Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The second, this is the second statement in a row that concludes with cannot be my disciple. It doesn't say it will be hard to be my disciple. It says cannot be my disciple. The cross in Jesus' day was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument of shame. Criminals were crucified, naked, on major thoroughfares, going in and outside cities. Families would travel by, and parents would look at criminals on crosses and say, look, kids, don't make a mess of your life or you will end up like that. That filthy human being is not what you want to become. So Jesus is saying, one who refuses to follow me even unto death, one who refuses to acknowledge and understand that your reputation will likely take a hit for my name, that one cannot be my disciple. The Christian faith is not a decision to add Christianity to our lives, but it's a dying to ourselves, our desires, our dreams, our thoughts of ourselves, entirely surrendering to follow Him. And so when we talk about our work, when we talk about our school, when we talk about our friends, our loved ones, our social life, our relationships, our Christian faith influences all of these things because you don't take yourself off of the cross when it gets uncomfortable. You carry it. Wherever you go, you might be faced with business circumstances where a superior or someone says to you, hey, just look the other way. Yeah, this is ethically not entirely all in the up and up, but it'll work itself out. You need to fudge the numbers here a little bit. You might face decisions with raising children, what they'll be exposed to, what your ch- how, how you will seek to raise your children in accord with God's Word, and and, and that will be difficult. And you wonder even, what is the incentive? The incentive is the reward of Jesus who took up His cross for you. And by looking upon His death in your place, by faith, you see Him, and you are made alive to trust Him. By faith, you are His disciple. Third question, third sub-question, have you counted the cost? Jesus gives two illustrations here in verses 28 to 33, a man considering building a tower and a man considering leading his forces into war. And in these illustrations, he articulates two different points revolving around this idea of counting the cost of what it means to follow him. Jesus basically says, you've heard a lot about what it means to follow me. You need to consider it. Don't rush hastily into it and say, yes, I want Christianity. But seriously consider what it means to follow me because the cost is high. The first illustration is a man who wants to build a tower, but then he doesn't have all his materials and he gets halfway done and people mock him. Are you willing to count the cost to follow Jesus, to consider the cross and say, the cost, and say, I will take up my cross and follow him, and there's no boundaries where it gets too hard and I say, I'm no longer in. Rather, I am his disciple even unto death. Are you willing to be misrepresented for the name of Christ? Are you willing for people to assume things about you for the name of Christ, even things that are entirely untrue? 
Christians, even evangelicals. Others are thought of in a variety of different ways, some of which are poorly owned or earned by professing believers. Yet others are misrepresentations or things that have been attached to Christians that are entirely untrue. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. Did you know our early brothers and sisters, not long after Jesus said this, in the earliest days of the church, earliest days of the church, early Christians in some parts of Rome were accused of being cannibals and practicing incest. Neither of these were true, but the people of Rome culturally found that it was easier to malign and hate a people who they could make into a barbaric people. And you see this all over the place, right? misrepresentations of groups that are disagreed with or thought to be a threat. You are not immune from that, dear Christian. If it happened to our Lord where He was so misunderstood, so poorly treated that it led to His crucifixion on a cross, then it will happen to us that you might not be crucified on a cross, but you will be thought of or misrepresented in ways simply for the name of Christ. Jesus says, count the cost of following me. Now, the second illustration is interesting. You have a king who has a force of 10,000, and he considers whether he will try to fight another king who has a force of 20,000. And when the king realizes his forces cannot withstand the more powerful king, he sends a delegation to negotiate surrender. I think this illustration serves a slightly different point, and that is Jesus is telling the crowd, consider what it means to follow me. He's understanding a decision must be made with awareness to who he is and what the future holds. He's saying all of history is marching towards my eternal rule. There will be those who embrace me and those who by faith begin to follow and enjoy the everlasting delight of the feast of my kingdom and those who reject and those who refuse and receive the judgment of their rejection of God. They are the less powerful king who will be overwhelmed in the judgment when the more powerful king arrives. And I think Jesus is saying here, count the cost. But part of your counting the cost is considering the king in the kingdom who is coming. Do not try to negotiate, but surrender. And surrender, and you will, in fact, find life. Verse 33 helps us to understand this. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has can not be my disciple. Last question in conclusion. Do you know that you cannot turn back? Jesus explains that salt that has lost its taste cannot be restored. It's a strange illustration, but basically salt in Jesus' day was used as a preservative, as in some ways it is in our day, but if it lost its taste, it was worthless, it was pointless, it was meaningless, it just needed to be thrown out. And Jesus is saying those who have an empty, deceptive faith that is actually of no worth and no seriousness in following me, it needs to be thrown out. Do not believe, do not aspire, do not hold to such an empty faith. Jesus has inspected the validity of your faith and the true condition of your heart towards Him. That is what He has done in Luke 14. Perhaps you've been encouraged as you follow Jesus, or perhaps He has revealed a faith that you thought was of great value but is actually of emptiness and you are deceiving yourselves. After considering these words of Jesus, I urge you, do not deceive yourself with devastatingly empty faith. Surrender everything and follow Jesus.